Book two, chapter three of my own story by Emmeline Pankhurst. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Four years of peaceful militancy, chapter three. Now we had reached a point where we had to choose between two alternatives. We had exhausted argument. Therefore, either we had to give up our agitation altogether, as the suffragists of the eighties virtually had done, or else we must act, and go on acting, until the selfishness and the obstinacy of the government was broken down, or the government themselves destroyed. Until forced to do so, the government, we perceived, would never give women the vote. We realized the truth of John Bright's words, spoken while the Reform Bill of 1867 was being agitated. Parliament, John Bright then declared, had never been hardy for any reform. The Reform Act of 1832 had been wrested by force from the government of that day, and now before another, he said, could be carried, the agitators would have to fill the streets with people from Charing Cross to Westminster Abbey. Acting on John Bright's advice, we issued a call to the public to join us in holding a huge demonstration on June 30th outside the House of Commons. We wanted to be sure that the government saw as well as read of our immense following. A public proclamation from the Commissioner of Police, warning the public not to assemble in Parliament Square, and declaring that the approaches to the Houses of Parliament must be kept open, was at once issued. We persisted in announcing that the demonstration would take place, and I wrote a letter to Mr. Asquith telling him that a deputation would wait upon him at half-past four on the afternoon of June 30th. We held the usual women's parliament in Caxton Hall, after which Mrs. Pethick Lawrence, eleven other women, and myself set forth. We met with no opposition from the police, but marched through cheering crowds of spectators to the stranger's entrance to the House of Commons. Here we were met by a large group of uniformed men, commanded by Inspector Scantlebury, of the police. The inspector, whom I knew personally, stepped forward and demanded officially, "'Are you Mrs. Pankhurst, and is this your deputation?' "'Yes,' I replied. "'My orders are to exclude you from the House of Commons.' "'Has Mr. Asquith received my letter?' I asked." For answer, the inspector drew my letter from his pocket and handed it to me. Did Mr. Asquith return no message, no kind of reply? I inquired. No, replied the inspector. We turned and walked back to Caxton Hall to tell the waiting audience what had occurred. We resolved that there was nothing to do but wait patiently until evening and see how well the public would respond to our call to meet in Parliament Square. Already we knew that the streets were filled with people, and early as it was, the crowds were increasing rapidly. At eight we went out in groups from Caxton Hall to find Parliament Square packed with a throng, estimated the next day at at least one hundred thousand. From the steps of public buildings, from stone copings, from the iron railings of Palace Yard, to which they clung precariously, our women made speeches until the police pulled them down and flung them into moving, swaying, excited crowds. Some of the women were arrested, others were merely ordered to move on. Mingled cheers and jeers rose from the spectators. Some of the men were roughs who had come out to amuse themselves. Others were genuinely sympathetic and tried valiantly to help us reach the House of Commons. Again and again the police lines were broken, and it was only as the result of repeated charges by mounted police that the people's attacks were repelled. Many members of Parliament, including Mr. Lloyd George, Mr. Winston Churchill, and Mr. Herbert Gladstone, came out to witness the struggle, which lasted until midnight and resulted in the arrest of twenty-nine women. Two of these women were arrested after they had each thrown a stone through a window of Mr. Asquith's official residence in Downing Street, the value of the windows being about $2.40. This was the first window-breaking in our history. 
mrs mary lee and miss edith knew who had thrown the stones sent word to me from the police court that having acted without orders they would not resent repudiation from headquarters far from repudiating them i went at once to see them in their cells and assured them of my approval of their act the smashing of windows is a time-honored method of showing displeasure in a political situation as one of the newspapers commenting on the affair truly said when the king and queen dine at apsley on the thirteenth instance they will be entertained in rooms the windows of which the duke of wellington was obliged to protect with iron shutters from the fury of his political opponents in winchester a few years ago to give but one instance a great riot took place as a protest against the removal of a historic gun from one part of town to another in the course of this riot windows were broken and other property of various kinds were destroyed very serious damage being done no punishment was administered in respect of this riot and the authorities bowing to public opinion thus riotously expressed restored the gun to its original situation window breaking when english men do it is regarded as an honest expression of political opinion window breaking when english women do it is treated as a crime in sentencing mrs lee and miss new to two months in the first division the magistrate used very severe language and declared that such a thing must never happen again of course the women assured him that it would happen again said mrs lee we have no other course but to rebel against oppression and if necessary to resort to stronger measures this fight is going on the summer of nineteen o eight is remembered as one of the most oppressively hot seasons the country had known for years our prisoners in holloway suffered intensely some being made desperately ill from the heat the bad air and the miserable food we who spent the summer campaigning suffered also but in less degree it was a tremendous relief when the cool days of autumn set in and it was with renewed vigor that we prepared for the opening day of parliament which was october twelfth again we resolved to send a deputation to the prime minister and again we invited the general public to take part in the demonstration we had printed thousands of little handbills bearing this inscription men and women help the suffragettes to rush the house of commons on tuesday evening october thirteenth at seven thirty on sunday october eleventh we held a large meeting in trafalgar square my daughter christabel mrs drummond and i speaking from the plinth of the nelson monument mr lloyd george as we afterward learned was a member of the audience the police were there taking ample notes of our speeches we had not failed to notice that they were watching us daily dogging our footsteps and showing in numerous ways that they were under orders to keep track of all our movements the climax came at noon on october twelfth when christabel mrs drummond and i were each served with an imposing legal document which read information has been laid this day by the commissioner of police that you in the month of october in the year nineteen o eight were guilty of conduct likely to provoke a breach of the peace by initiating and causing to be initiated by publishing and causing to be published a certain handbill calling upon and inciting the public to do a certain wrongful and illegal act viz to rush the house of commons at seven thirty p m on october thirteenth instant the last paragraph was a summons to appear at bow street police station that same afternoon at three o'clock we did not go to bow street police station we went instead to a crowded at home at queen's hall where it can be imagined that our news created great excitement the place was surrounded by constables and the police reporters were on hand to take stenographic reports of everything that was said from the platform once an excited cry was raised that a police inspector was coming in to arrest us but the officer merely brought a message that the summons had been adjourned until the following morning it did not suit our convenience to obey the adjourned summons quite so early so i wrote a polite note to the police saying that we would be in our headquarters number four clements inn the next evening at six o'clock and would then be at his disposal warrants for our arrests were quickly issued and inspector jarvis was instructed to execute them at once this he found impossible to do for mrs drummond was spending her last day of liberty on private business while my daughter and i had retreated to another part of clement's inn which is a big rambling building 
there in the roof garden of the pethick lawrence's private flat we remained all day busy under the soft blue of the autumn sky with our work and our preparations for long absence at six we walked downstairs dressed for the street mrs drummond arrived promptly the waiting officers read the warrants and we all proceeded to bow street in cabs it was too late for the trial to be held we asked for bail but the authorities had no mind to allow us to take part in the rush which we had incited so we were obliged to spend the night in the police station all night i lay awake thinking of the scenes which were going on in the streets the next morning in a courtroom crowded to its utmost capacity my daughter rose to conduct her first case at law she had earned the right to an llb after her name but as women are not permitted to practice law in england she had never appeared at the bar in any capacity except that of defendant now she proposed to combine the two roles of defendant and lawyer and conduct the case for the three of us she began by asking the magistrate not to try the case in that court but to send it for trial before a judge and jury we had long desired to take the suffragettes cases before bodies of private citizens because we had every reason to suspect that the police court officials acted under the direct commands of the very persons against whom our agitation was directed jury trial was denied us but after the preliminary examination was over the magistrate mr curtis bennett allowed a week's adjournment for the preparation of the case on october twenty first the trial was resumed with the courtroom as full as before and the press table even more crowded for it had been widely published that we had actually subpoenaed two members of the government who had witnessed the scenes on the night of october thirteenth the first witness to enter the box was mr lloyd george christabel examined him at some length as to the meaning and merits of the word rush and succeeded in making him very uncomfortable and the charge against ourselves look very flimsy she then questioned him about the speeches he had heard at trafalgar square and as to whether there had been any suggestion that property be destroyed or personal violence used he admitted that the speeches were temperate and the crowds orderly then christabel suddenly asked there were no words used so likely to incite to violence as the advice you gave at swansea that the women should be ruthlessly flung out of your meeting mr lloyd george looked black and answered nothing the magistrate hastened to the protection of mr lloyd george this is quite irrelevant he said that was a private meeting it was a public meeting and christabel said so it was a private meeting in a sense insisted the magistrate mr lloyd george assumed an air of pompous indignation when christabel asked him have we not received encouragement from you and if not from you from your colleagues to take action of this kind mr lloyd george rolled his eyes upward as he replied i should be very much surprised to hear that miss pankhurst is it not a fact asked christabel that you yourself have set us an example of revolt i never incited a crowd to violence exclaimed the witness not in the welsh graveyard case she asked no he cried angrily you did not tell them to break down a wall and disinter a body pursued christabel he could not deny this but i gave advice which was found by the court of appeal to be sound legal advice he snapped and then turned his back as far as he could in the narrow witness box mr herbert gladstone had asked to be allowed to testify early as he was being detained from important public duties christabel asked to question one witness before mr gladstone entered the box the witness was miss georgiana brackenbury who had recently suffered six weeks imprisonment for the cause and had since met and had a talk with mr horace smith the magistrate who had made to her a most important and damaging admission of the government's interference in the suffragists trials christabel asked her one question did mr horace smith tell you in sentencing you that he was doing what he had been told to do you must not put that question exclaimed the magistrate but the witness had already answered yes there was an excited stir in the courtroom 
it had been recorded under oath that a magistrate had admitted that suffragettes were being sentenced not by himself according to the evidence and according to law but by the government for no one could possibly doubt where mr horace smith's orders came from mr gladstone plump bald and ruddy in no way resembles his illustrious father he entered the witness-box smiling and confident but his complacence vanished when christabel asked him outright if the government had not ordered the commissioner of police to take this action against us of course the magistrate intervened and mr gladstone did not answer the question christabel tried again did you instruct mr horace smith to decide against miss brackenberry and to send her to prison for six weeks that too was objected to as were all questions on the subject all through the examination the magistrate constantly intervened to save the cabinet minister from embarrassment but christabel finally succeeded in making mr gladstone admit point by point that he had said that women could never get the vote because they could not fight for it as men had fought a large number of witnesses testified to the orderly nature of the demonstration on the thirteenth and then christabel rose to plead she began by declaring that these proceedings had been taken as the legal saying is in malice and vexation in order to lame a political enemy she declared that under the law the charge which might properly be brought against us was that of illegal assembly but the government had not charged us with this offence because the government desired to keep the case in a police court the authorities dare not see this case come before a jury she declared because they know perfectly well that if it were heard before a jury of our countrymen we should be acquitted just as john burns was acquitted years ago for taking action far more dangerous to the public peace than we have taken we are deprived of trial by jury we are also deprived of the right to appeal against the magistrate's decision we are also deprived of the right to appeal against the magistrate's decision very carefully has this procedure been thought out of the handbill she said we do not deny that we issued this bill none of the three of us has wished to deny responsibility we did issue the bill we did cause it to be circulated we did put upon it the words come and help the suffragettes rush the house of commons for these words we do not apologize it is very well known that we took this action in order to press forward a claim which according to the british constitution we are well entitled to make in all that the suffragettes had done in all that they might ever do declared my daughter they would only be following in the footsteps of men now in parliament mr herbert gladstone has told us in the speech i read to him that the victory of the argument alone is not enough as we cannot hope to win by force of argument alone it is necessary to overcome by other means the savage resistance of the government to our claim for citizenship he says go on fight as the men did and then when we show our power and get the people to help us he takes proceedings against us in a manner that would have been disgraceful even in the old days of coercion then there is mr lloyd george who if any man has done so has set us an example his whole career has been a series of revolts he has said that if we do not get the vote mark these words we should be justified in adopting the methods the men had to adopt namely pulling down the hyde park railings she quoted lord morley as saying of the indian unrest we are in india in the presence of a living movement and a movement for what for objects which we ourselves have taught them to think are desirable objects and unless we can somehow reconcile order with satisfaction of those ideals and aspirations the fault will not be theirs it will be ours it will mark the breakdown of british statesmanship apply those words to our case she continued remember that we are demanding of liberal statesmen that which is for us the greatest boon and the most essential right and if the present government cannot reconcile order with our demand for the vote without delay it will mark the breakdown of their statesmanship yes their statesmanship has broken down already they are disgraced it is only in this court that they have the smallest hope of being supported my daughter had spoken with passion and fervor and her righteous indignation had moved her to words that caused the magistrate's face to turn an angry crimson 
When I rose to address the court, I began by assuming an appearance of calmness, which I did not altogether feel. I endorsed all that Christabel had said of the unfairness of our trial and the malice of the government. I protested against the trial of political offenders in a common police court, and I said that we were not women who would come into the court as ordinary lawbreakers. I described Mrs. Drummond's worthy career as a wife, a mother, and a self-sustaining businesswoman. I said, before you decide what is to be done with us, I should like you to hear from me a statement of what has brought me into the dock this morning. And then I told of my life and experiences, many of which I have related in these pages of what I had seen and known as a poor law guardian and a registrar of births and deaths, of how I had learned the burning necessity of changing the status of women, of altering the laws under which they and their children live, and of the essential justice of making women self-governing citizens. I have seen, I said, that men are encouraged by law to take advantage of the helplessness of women. Many women have thought as I have, and for many, many years have tried, by that influence, of which we have been so often reminded, to alter these laws, but we find that influence counts for nothing. When we went to the House of Commons we used to be told, when we were persistent, that members of Parliament were not responsible to women, they were responsible only to voters, and that their time was too fully occupied to reform those laws, although they agreed that they needed reforming. We women have presented larger petitions in support of our enfranchisement than were ever presented for any other reform we have succeeded in holding greater public meetings than men have ever held for any reform in spite of the difficulty which women have in throwing off their natural diffidence that desire to escape publicity which we have inherited from generations of our foremothers we have broken through that we have faced hostile mobs at street corners because we were told that we could not have that representation for our taxes that men have won unless we converted the whole of the country to our side because we have done this, we have been misrepresented, we have been ridiculed, we have had contempt poured upon us, and the ignorant mob have been incited to offer us violence, which we have faced unarmed and unprotected by the safeguards which cabinet ministers enjoy. We have been driven to do this. We are determined to go on with this agitation because we feel in honor bound. Just as it was the duty of your forefathers, it is our duty to make the world a better place for women than it is today. Lastly, I want to call attention to the self-restraint which was shown by our followers on the night of the 13th after we had been arrested. Our rule has always been to be patient, exercise self-restraint, show our so-called superiors that we are not hysterical, to use no violence, but rather to offer ourselves to the violence of others. That is all I have to say to you, sir. We are here not because we are lawbreakers. We are here in our efforts to become lawmakers. The burly policemen, the reporters, and most of the spectators were in tears as I finished but the magistrate who had listened part of the time with his hand concealing his face still held that we were properly charged in a common police court as insiders to riot since we refused to be bound over to keep the peace he sentenced mrs drummond and myself to three months imprisonment and christabel to ten weeks imprisonment it was destined to be a kind of imprisonment the authorities had never yet been called upon to deal with end of book two chapter three